0: My govon and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and just because Rings of Power is over doesn't mean we have to stop talking about terrible Tolkien adaptations. Ooh. Wait, did I call it an adaptation? Ooh! Anyway, putting that aside, the other adaptation that I had in mind is one that, of course, never reached the screen. And unlike the John Borman script, which just completely debased Tolkien. This one, the Zimmerman script, was just downright silly. And and Tolkien had no uh, compunction about letting people know that. The actual script is one that I don't have access to. I'm not sure anybody does. What I do have is access to the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. And parts of two letters in which he addressed this script are in that volume, not the entire letter. You can get the entire letter if you're like a scholar, you can go to, I think it's Marquette University that has the actual, maybe it's not Marquette, I forget exactly where the the full letter is kept, but there's a place that has the full letter, and if you're a scholar and you can get access to those kinds of things, you can get access to it, but I don't. So I don't have the access to the full commentary that Tolkien gave, but There's a pretty good chunk of it in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. It's letters number 207 and 210, if you're interested, so you can find it quickly. And Tolkien has a lot of disdain for this adaptation. And a lot of what we can glean about the adaptation, we have to do it through his commentary. And one of the important things, I think, about this is that a lot of the people who were defending Rings of Power by saying... Tolkien gave up the rights and therefore it doesn't matter, or Tolkien didn't care about how people adapted whatever because he sold the rights, it's like, well, no, it's really not that simple. Tolkien was very interested in selling the rights to make a movie about Lord of the Rings because he needed the money kind of desperately, Uh, he was not a wealthy man. But, nevertheless, he was very, very keen on having something like an accurate artistic representation of his own work, if the story was going to be adapted. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at what he said, starting with the first letter, number 207. The first letter is really about a kind of broad overview where Tolkien is writing back to, I believe it's Alan and Unwin saying, Here's kind of my general impressions. I haven't had a chance to really sit down in detail. It's got problems, but I'll try to kind of with, with restrain my really bad stuff in the interest of trying to make a deal. Because I do want to make a deal. Uh, but he gives some overall commentary that are you know just kind of brief points. And some of the things he mentions are the names get mixed up. For example, Boromir becomes Borimore. Uh, which is, you know, when you've, heard, when you've actually heard the correct pronunciation all your life, just thinking of hearing a movie with Borimore throughout makes you appreciate Aramon from Ralph Bakshi, actually. Uh, he also says, like, the characterizations are off, the dialogue is bad. Overall, it just seems kind of silly. It seems like Zimmerman barely skimmed the actual source material, didn't really read it. And overall, the script doesn't seem to have any respect for the original source. So he gives this kind of general commentary, and that serves as a nice prologue for what we get in the second letter, which is number 210, where he gets into some more detailed criticism. Now again, what we have in this letter is a very brief version of what he actually wrote and therefore it doesn't cover everything. So we can't get a whole lot of detail on exactly how Zimmerman changed the story, especially in certain parts, because after the first part, The Fellowship of the Ring, he kind of starts to condense down his complaints even more because he puts a lot of upfront general types of criticism in the first part, and then it's like, okay, these are kind of standing throughout, so I don't have to repeat them over and over, but it gives us an idea of what the script might have looked like. So... Let's see how bad it gets. So in this letter, he again gives some kind of general criticisms up front before he really starts going kind of beat by beat through the story. And he says that there's a lot of unnecessary intrusion of eagles. And he points out, like, in my book, I used them kind of to the limit that you can really use such a mechanism in the story. If you overuse it, it just ruins the effect. And, of course, he's pointing out here that it it becomes way too much of a deus ex machina type thing that ruins the story. You have to take the eagles very sparingly as an intrusion of providence. Otherwise, there's just too much of it and there's not enough logic left to the story because it's like, well, why? (laughs) Because apparently what happens throughout this script is when they leave places, they just take like an eagle taxi to the next major location and then events happen, and then they take another eagle taxi, and then events happen. (laughs) Which is really disturbing when you think about it, because then the question really does become, why didn't they just take the eagles all the way, not stop, and therefore have to deal with all these other events? So, you know, there's problems there. Another thing he mentions is there's these weird magic things that happen that's totally not relevant to the book. For example, Faramir's body floats. And he doesn't go into enough detail here, but I assume... This is at some point when Faramir's been wounded and is maybe being floated by Gandalf's magic? I don't know, it doesn't make it clear, but that's the the best case scenario that I can imagine, so I'll try to give as much uh, generosity and benefit of the doubt to the script as I can, but even that is silly, and that's Tolkien's point. It's like, this is irrelevant, there's no reason for this, it's just adding magic for the sake of magic. Right, And there's no reason to do that. He also mentions that there is a fairy castle, which will, I think we we'll get a little more detail later on. And why is there a fairy castle? Also, he points out that the story as a whole takes a lot of the emphasis off the story, the quest, and puts way more emphasis on fights. And this, of course, is something that Christopher Tolkien echoed later in his own criticism of the Peter Jackson trilogy, which is that he turned the story into an action movie for teenage boys. Now, Peter Jackson's film is definitely more action-focused than the original story, but I have a suspicion that Zimmerman was going to be even worse, especially given the comment we got about the Eagles. And that's just, you know, it would have been awful to see that the story to get that condensed and spend that much time on battles and war scenes and stuff like that. Peter Jackson's, at least, is a long enough movie set of movies that even with extended battle scenes, you get a good chunk of story that is not action sequences. I seriously doubt Zimmerman could have managed that on the time schedule that he was probably working with. Now we start getting into some more detailed stuff, going kind of plot point by plot point, and we start in The Shire... And he says that some of the fireworks are of flags and of hobbits. And he's like, why? I've already got descriptions in the book as to what the fireworks, you know, looked like, represented, things like that. You know, you've got the mountain with the dragon representing Smaug flying around it. You've got spears. You've got flowers. You've got, you know, descriptions of these fireworks are in the book. And he says, why are you changing it unnecessarily? And this is where my point earlier comes in. Tolkien is not happy with just completely unnecessary changes. He may be willing to sell the rights to make the movie. That doesn't mean he's just like, okay, do whatever you want. He's like, no, this is stupid. Why would you change it just because? It's like, just because it's your idea, not mine? (laughs) Aren't you adapting my material? Uh, So that's one comment that he makes. He also takes some umbrage at the fact that Gandalf splutters. Gandalf does not splutter, Tolkien informs <laughs> his his reader. That does not happen. Which, you know, makes sense. Gandalf is he has a temper, but he doesn't splutter. He's not you know, an impetulant or a petulant, impetuous or otherwise silly type of person. He is very serious and when he gets angry, he has a very good reason to be angry and he controls his anger. That's you know, Gandalf does not splutter. And then he talks about how the eagles come to the Shire to take Frodo wherever and he says this ruins Gandalf's escape from the tower of Orthanc later in the story. And so why are <laughs> why are we doing this? We're we're spoiling the whole thing already and we're already introducing eagles, which is a really terrible idea. In fact he also points out that Radagast is an eagle. Okay, that's an interesting choice. He also mentions, although does not give enough information to fully explain, that some form of time compression happens around here, and therefore the change of seasons from fall to spring is not done in the movie in the way that it is in the book. And so he's either talking about the fact that Bilbo and Frodo's party takes place in the autumn, you know, very early autumn, September, and then we move to spring when Gandalf returns and talks to Frodo, and then again, of course, to autumn when Frodo finally departs, he, he must be talking about something in there, and so the story, I assume, probably is something like, as soon as Bilbo's party is over, Gandalf is telling Frodo, hey, you got to get out of the Shire, and then we got an eagle and we're going. <laughs> which, man, talk about a rushed plot, but I, like I said, I imagine Zimmerman does not have a whole lot of time to work with, and he's going to spend plenty of it on battle scenes, because that's what draws people to movies, right? Uh, I have thoughts on that. I will be doing a video in the future about a comparison of Lord of the Rings with another movie that is very much not full of battle scenes, which I think is a somewhat apt comparison, but which puts the lie to this whole idea that you've got to have action scenes to draw people to movies so at any rate that that takes care of the really early parts of the story next we get some comments about Tom Bombadil and Goldberry and he says Tom Bombadil's language has been made silly and childlike and Goldberry's introduction is also rather silly and here again we can get that sense of Tolkien being kind of really, really reticent to let changes happen just because, and also perturbed that Zimmerman does not seem to have really gotten the point, or has skimmed it. Because if you just kind of skim through Bombadil and don't pay any attention, you could get the impression that Bombadil is just silly, but when you actually stop and smell the roses a bit with him, you can understand that Tom Bombadil is a very, very serious person, He's just a very joyful person, and his singing reflects the joy, not the childlike silliness of, you know, some fairy tale character that might be less. Uh, I'm not sure what word to use here because Bombadil is so unique, but you know, it's not like Bombadil is just completely carefree and has no concerns for anything, and therefore is just a silly, childlike, innocent that's not really what Bombadil is that's part of his character but he's more than that and of course introducing goldberry in a silly way is just criminal because goldberry is her introduction in the book is actually quite significant as short and as you know little as she plays in the book as as she does her introduction is still significant because it's like she's in an, an elf queen in terms of beauty but more Earth-like and connected to something that a mortal can understand, and therefore it's kind of a bridge between those two worlds. And therefore, we get this impression that she also is significant in some way that we don't really fully understand. Next, we skip along to Bree, where Tolkien mentions that Butterbur asks Frodo to register, and says, why would he ask him to register? This is not a modern hotel where you have to put your name down and your credit card or whatever. He doesn't use the term credit card because in Tolkien's time that wasn't very common either. Uh, But, you know, just the idea that Butterbur, in something like a medieval setting, would ask Frodo to register to stay at the inn is kind of absurd. He also points out that Strider sets out with the hobbits in the middle of the night, when the Nazgul are at their most dangerous, which is exactly what he would not do, which is why Aragorn waits till the morning to set out, and travels mainly by day, and tries to stay hidden. And he also points out here that the Nazgul are misconceived throughout, though unfortunately he doesn't give enough detail to really explain how. I'd be really curious to know how Zimmerman was conceiving of the Nazgul, because I have a feeling it's probably awful. Next we get to Weathertop pretty quickly and, well, things get strange because Aragorn can apparently see Rivendell from Weathertop and it is a shimmering forest, which of course Tolkien is hasty to point out, it's like two weeks journey, you can't see it from Weathertop and it's not a shimmering forest, it's a hidden valley, it's a hidden valley, (laughs) you should not be able to see it even from a relatively near distance, let alone from Weathertop. He then talks about the attack on Weathertop by the Nazgul, and says that Aragorn is fighting with a sword, which he shouldn't be. The Nazgul scream when they attack, and they shouldn't. Aragorn blanches, which he doesn't. (laughs) Sam even manages to stab a Nazgul's thigh, and thus saves Frodo, and yet his sword survives. And he's like, no, if the sword stabs the Nazgul, they go away. Um... He also mentions, and this is slightly less important in some ways, but again it shows you the attention to detail that he cares about. He says that before the attack on Weathertop, Aragorn is singing about Gilgalad, which of course in the book is Sam's thing. He sings part of the story of Gilgalad, and they want to hear more, and Aragorn's like, No, I don't think that's really appropriate for the occasion. I'm going to tell you of Baron and Luthien. And Tolkien is not so much worried about the transposition of the story from Sam to Aragorn. He is worried about the tonal implications and the fact that Aragorn insists that Gilgalad's story is not really the right thing to seeing at this moment while they're in the night in the Dell at Weathertop. So again, Tolkien is very interested in these minor, seemingly minor, but to him very important details. It's like, there's a reason Aragorn does not sing about Gilgala. There's a reason he sings about Beren and Luthien. And Tolkien cares about that. So again, this idea that Tolkien's just like, it doesn't matter. No, it mattered a great deal to Tolkien. A lot of things mattered a great deal to Tolkien. Next, we get some commentary about Rivendell. And after the council, apparently Gandalf says, we're going to leave as soon as we can pack. And he's like, why are you compressing the time down when I had him wait like a couple months till December and... They could scout out the land and stuff like that. Again, time compression, kind of understandable in a sense. And then he makes fun of the fact that despite sticking with the nomenclature of the Fellowship being the nine walkers, they immediately set out on eagles. So where are they walking exactly? (laughs) It's just kind of hilarious. The overuse of eagles makes the rest of the story so completely unbelievable because if you're going to just use eagles all the time, why do you have to do any of this walking? Why do we have the attack at Weathertop? Why is it so hard to get to Rivendell? Why can't we just fly straight to Mount Doom? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, and then we next get apparently a comment about the orcs in Moria, and they have beaks and feathers, which I'm not sure which is worse. The idea of orcs with beaks and feathers or John Boorman's idea of orcs, which is kind of like a slug creature covered in a scaly skin. I I leave it to you to determine which is worse, but neither of them are particularly uh... yeah, it's just not good. Next, we get a comment about the Balrog, who apparently laughs and maybe even speaks. It's not 100% clear. Uh, Again, because we're not reading the script, we're just reading Tolkien's truncated uh, version of his commentary. And so, you know, he points out that the whole thing between Gandalf and the Balrog is the Balrog never talks. It's only Gandalf who makes any kind of sound other than, you know, the cracking of a whip or something like that. No no vocal sounds come from the Balrog at all. Then they get to Lothlorien and, and there's a castle and Galadriel is an elven queen at least it's not John Borman's Galadriel, okay? But this is where that fairy castle element comes in. He's like, Lothlorian is not a fairy castle. This is actually where the forest comes in and you put that in Rivendell. Why? <laughs> he also mentions that Galadriel is not tempted by the ring at any point. And then horror of horrors, and this is arguably one of the worst things in this script, Limbus is described as a food concentrate and Tolkien of course rightly decries this creative choice if you can call it that by pointing out that why would you try to scientific there's really no word for this why would you try to make something scientific when it's clearly meant to be more of a mythological and even almost religiously important type of thing Limbus is not supposed to be just a scientifically derived food concentrate or MRE or other portable food source. That's not what it is. Why would you do that? It's like taking Butterbur asking Frodo to register at, like, a hotel and upping it by about a thousand. It's absolutely awful, and Tolkien was just not having it. This is kind of the end of part one, or at least the end of the what we get in the letter of part one, and he says that parts two and three are even worse, confusing to the point of delirium. And he says that, you know, the ints are terrible, but he's also confused. What are the ints? And that, the fact that Tolkien is confused as to what the ints are tells me that the description in this script must have been absolutely terrible. What exactly it was, we'll never know, or at least I'll never know, uh, probably, but... Man, you don't want to imagine it either. He then gets to Eterus and mentions that Theoden has a private chamber in which he receives the the fellowship, or at least what's left of the fellowship, you know, the Gandalf and the Three Hunters, instead of receiving them in the big hall, which is what it's supposed to be. And he's like, why are you doing this? He also mentions that there are glass windows. Why are there glass windows? This is like an Anglo-Saxon mead hall. There's not going to be glass windows, guys. Uh, so he's just pointing out, like, this; these changes make no sense in the context of the story. It doesn't fit. He also makes some comments about the battle at Helm's Deep, and he says it's so incoherent you might as well cut it. And, in fact, he says, you know, you might as well skip Helm's Deep and get on to, like, the main battle because Helm's Deep is not narratively as significant. And if you're going to have to cut a bunch of stuff down for time, Helm's Deep would be a thing to cut. Next, when the conquering heroes from Helm's Deep arrive at Orthanc he mentions that the script has the hobbits eating ridiculously long sandwiches which again is kind of like that registering at the hotel thing it's 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 so tonally inappropriate to what the you know, the setting of the story, the the nature of the story, everything. It's just Tolkien is just like Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> he also mentions that the Tower of Orthanc has a winding stair around it, which is, you know, inaccurate. It's like, I described the setup in the book. You can read it. It's there. Why did you change that? He also says that Saruman is described as hypnotic, which is a really terrible thing to say, because that's not what Saruman does, he does not hypnotize, and he says that the word hypnotic itself is just overused, and then apparently Saruman commits suicide in this script, which is like, what? Why? That makes no sense, but, you know, nevertheless, that's apparently what happens. Then we get on to part three, and he says, part three is just completely unacceptable as a whole and in detail. So, We get the impression that now that Tolkien has really gotten down and read the whole thing, unlike in his first letter where he was like, I'll try to keep my, you know, criticisms restrained so that we might be able to get a deal here, I get the impression that Tolkien's like, okay, I give up, we're not, no, this just ain't happening, we're going to have to have some serious rewrites or this ain't happening. Unfortunately, that's kind of all we get in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien about this, but I did manage to find some other commentary about the story or the script and one of those is a i found online and i don't remember who brought this to my attention but there's an american author named janet bennett brennan croft who explored several early attempts including the zimmerman and she says that the production notes indicate that the producers plan to use a mix of animation miniature work and live action to make a three-hour film with two intermissions So that gives you an idea of the time compression that they were going to have to work with. Three hours? Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring alone is three hours, and it doesn't cover nearly everything that happens in the book. And none of the other adaptations even approach three hours, but they also don't try to cover everything. Ralph Bakshi manages to cover about half of the story in... I'm not sure exactly what the runtime is for that right offhand, but... You know he's he's also cutting a huge amount of material in doing that. So, you know, imagine trying to cover the entire Lord of the Rings in three hours with two intermissions, and just imagine trying to do it with miniatures and animation and live action all together. You know, it makes you think of say a movie like Mary Poppins, where you've got humans side by side with animated characters and uh, stuff like that, and. You know, it just, I I can't see Lord of the Rings being done in that style. It would be really awkward. Maybe you could make it work, but mm, I have a feeling it wouldn't. She also mentions that Gandalf hypnotizes and psychically frog-marches the eavesdropping Sam into Frodo's study. Which is just, like, that's not a Gandalf thing to do at all. The company is attacked at the gates of Moria by wolves, which Gandalf dispatches with a few lightning bolts, and in Moria he magically opens a chasm to swallow up the attacking orcs, which makes you wonder why they're ever in any danger at all. Between the eagles and Gandalf, this ought to be a cakewalk. Uh, This also mentions that during Denethor's suicide scene, Gandalf levitates the body of Faramir from the pyre, so there's that reference to Faramir's floating body. In a final act of wizardry, he turns the ring wraiths to stone one by one at the Battle of the Black Gate while the assembled armies watch in silence. Which, again, it's like you have literally undone all the stakes that were ever in the story by the time that you give Gandalf this kind of power. Uh, several armed attacks on Strider and the hobbits as they flee from Weathertop to Rivendell and sending them over the Rauros Falls in their flimsy rowboats. So, there's just... A lot of action scenes, apparently, in this movie that we didn't even get mentioned in Tolkien's letter, or at least the version that we get. Several armed attacks between Weathertop and Rivendell. I've, <laughs> talk about ramping up the action in the movie. And then, fly, you know, just going over the falls in the boats. That's just, imagine, that's insane. Sam actually abandons Frodo to Shelob and carries the ring to Mount Doom himself. He realizes Frodo is still alive, but his duty to Middle-earth triumphs. Ah, talk about ruining the story. Like, that is Sam's whole purpose and his character arc. That is... uh, Ooh. I mean, I can understand why in a really shallow reading you would be like, why didn't Sam just take the ring and finish the job himself? Because that's obviously the thing that he's got to do, right? And that's one of the things that Sam is wrestling with himself to do. I mean that is legitimately a thing on his mind, but he comes to the conclusion that no that would not work. And this was one of the things that I talked about with David Rowe in my interview with him about wisdom in Tolkien. This seems to be almost like a revealed wisdom to Sam. Go back and watch my interview with him. This is one of like the one of the biggest Things that happened in that interview because we were talking, and as we were talking, the ideas developed between what we were doing, and I came to the conclusion in that interview that this is like a revealed wisdom to Sam because whenever he talks to Gildor and the elves in the Shire, they tell him, Don't you leave him. You know, it's this attributed to Gandalf in basically all the movies that talk about it, but it was actually Gildor and his elves that told Sam, Don't leave Frodo. And after this, he tells Sam, I feel like I have this kind of a vision of what's going to happen, but not really clear. I just know I have to do something and see it through to the end. And that thing is he has to stick with Frodo. That's his one right rule, as he calls it. So this idea that he would actually go back on that and that this quest would succeed is actually wrong. Now, in a standard moral judgment type of sense, you might argue that Sam should have taken the ring and finished the quest himself, but again... The point I'm making here is there is a sense in which he has been inspired with something revealed to him by Eru Iluvatar himself in the nature of, this is my job, and if I go through with that job, that's going to help things work out. My job is not to finish the quest on my own. It is to help Frodo finish the quest. So, changing this aspect of the story... (laughs) I mean, John Borman did a number on the Lord of the Rings script, but this is worse than a lot of what Borman did, if not everything that Borman did. Changing it to Sam being the one to take the ring to Mount Doom and just leaving Frodo behind, that makes even Peter Jackson's whole Frodo and Sam separation at the Pass of Kirith Ungol look rather tame as far as changes from the script goes. And it gets worse! At the cracks of doom, Sam is about to toss the ring into the fire when he is attacked by a crazed Frodo, who in turn is attacked by Gollum with no indication of where either of them has been hiding since Shelob's lair. The weekly written ending has Frodo awakening in Minas Tirith after Aragorn's wedding and immediately sailing away with the elves. Ew. There are annoying spelling errors repeated throughout. The entire Treebeard sequence and the meeting with Faramir are both truncated to the point of unintelligibility, which... Tells you a lot about what Tolkien was complaining about. The intercutting of the separate storylines of the two towers in Return of the King is disorienting, switching from Mount Doom to the Black Gate every few seconds at the climax. Which sounds actually kind of a lot like John Borman's script. (laughs) We do get a little bit of an interesting tidbit about Zimmerman in comparison with Jackson, because apparently in both, the scene where Bilbo is trying to give up the ring, Bilbo ends up dropping the ring on the floor and Gandalf refuses to touch it, leaving it for Frodo. Not only is the ring more obvious and visible menace, it allows the director to visually echo Bilbo picking up the ring in Gollum's cave. The Zimmerman treatment also vastly reduces the female character's importance, cutting Galadriel's temptation, bringing Arwen on screen only for her wedding and dropping Eowyn's attraction to Aragorn which is rather the opposite, of course, of what Borman did and what a lot of people would be tempted to do, and which would have been more logical in some ways because it's kind of what Tolkien started with. Tolkien started with Aragorn and Eowyn getting married, and then as he wrote the story, Arwen crept in, and he's like, oh, I can redo the Baron and Luthian thing here. That's, you know, that's probably not exactly his thought process. I'm just kind of truncating. But the point being, so the Zimmerman script basically cuts almost all of that out and leaves the female characters with even less to do than in the original story, which a lot of people already think is too little. They don't know what they're talking about, but that's okay. There's also a review that I found by Christina Skull, and that's from the Hammond Skull, the people who did, like, the the annotated Lord of the Rings companion. I forget the exact title of the volume right now. But they're, like, really serious Tolkien scholars, and they apparently looked at this, too. And... Uh, Miss Skull pointed out that Zimmerman's script features characters of Merry and Pippin as pesky younger cousins, without differentiating between the hobbits or offering any depth to their characterization, and also that the screenwriters often presented one-dimensional hobbits instead of Tolkien's more complex characters. Their planning and forethought as well as their steadfast loyalty to Frodo are greatly diminished when they merely follow Frodo on a whim, instead of after months of planning to accompany their friend and cousin. Which, of course actually sounds a lot like Peter Jackson's version of P- Mary and Pippin and that's one of the things that's really kind of sad about Peter Jackson's version but it sounds like Zimmerman basically took the same approach it's like there's really no there's no serious character development for Mary and Pippin in the Zimmerman thing at all and Peter Jackson gives us some but you know it's still not quite the same as the original story where both Mary and Pippin are serious in their attempts to help Frodo from the beginning. They don't just happen to come along with him. This, of course, also happens in Ralph Bakshi's version, and a lot of that is due to time compression again. You know, I mean, there's just not a whole lot of time to spend with these characters when you're trying to cover the entirety of the Lord of the Rings in three hours or less. It just, there's no way to do it. But, you know, this this is pretty much all the information I could find on the Zimmerman script, so, unfortunately, the letter... In the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, kind of cuts off before the third act, and therefore we don't get very much information on that at all, other than his comment that it's, you know, completely incoherent. And the few things that I can get from this other piece, which the few things that it talks about alone are enough to make you go, yeah, that definitely never should have been made. Um, it, you know, unlike Borman's script, where It's like he takes the story and then kind of reinvents it for his own purposes. Zimmerman just seems to be a lazy attempt at trying to kind of tell the same story and then just absolutely botching everything about it because they missed every single thing of significance in it. So which at the end of the day is worse, Boorman or Zimmerman? It's kind of hard to say. (laughs) It would be easier, perhaps, if we had the entirety of the script of Zimmerman and we could go through the whole thing, but we don't. And that's probably just as well, because I don't know that I would want to go through another four-video series on another terrible script that, thankfully, never made it to an actual adaptation. So, you know, be glad we dodged this bullet, too, guys. It's, It's really terrible. That said, I hope you enjoyed this unfortunately incomplete but still nevertheless strange and amusing romp through a really terrible attempt at an adaptation and if you want to catch more stuff like this of course subscribe i'm on youtube rumble odyssey other places got podcast podcast versions as well follow me on twitter at jrrt lore for occasional tolkien related tribute questions and you can find support links in the description below until the next time i'm the tolkien geek signing out for the tolkien lore channel namarie Thanks to all the channel supporters, especially Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, Paul Leone, and Oleg Gregg.